Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we'll get to these props in a second. Um, I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Uh, my name's John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, here is what has happened so far. Um, I'm going to try and give you the shortest summary ever of Romans 1 through 7, just so that you have context for what we're going to look at today. Um, so here's my summary of what we've looked at so far. Chapters 1 and 2 were all about um, humanity. And, and, and the big idea is that all of humanity, both religious and non-religious, is really sinful, is really messed up. And Paul just starts with the bad news. And, and in there somewhere, he gives like this little glimmer of hope, okay? And that kind of goes into the middle of chapter 3. And then in chapters 3 through 5, um, the good news is that God solves our sin and depravity problem by offering a righteousness through faith in Jesus that is available to everyone. And that's just the amazing news. It's the best news. And then in chapter 6 and 7, we have been looking at our ongoing struggle with the remnant of sin in our lives for followers of Jesus. And the big idea is that we may be followers of Jesus. That, that may be true. Um, but our struggle against our sin nature, it continues. And so the question is, is how do we struggle well? If we're going to struggle, how do we struggle well? And, and that's kind of what Romans 8 is all about. So I'm going to give you three words, three words as the summary of Romans 1 through 7. The three words are depravity, righteousness, and sin. So if you're wondering, like if you, if you just want to put it like that, that, that's the shortest summary ever. Don't require too much of it, okay? But that gives you a, a, a basic idea. And now we come to chapter 8. Um, but we're going to look in the, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this chapter in the wrong order, because I'm going to start in verse 18, and I'm going to go through 30. And the reason why, you may remember about a month ago, do you remember the rain out? Do you remember we're all here, and Andy is, like, preaching his sermon, and he gets, like, 10 minutes in, and then it's, like, misting, and then it's, like, raining kind of, and, and then Andy just called it. So that kind of messed up our, our preaching schedule. Um, I am scheduled to preach this week, and I'm scheduled to preach on Romans 18, so that's what we're going to look at, okay? Um, but the good news is that you don't have to take this in order. So let me just pray real quick, and then we will jump in. Jesus, we're going to look to you this morning. And Father God, we want to be guided by your word. And Holy Spirit, we believe that there's something that you want to do in our hearts this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that that happens. I pray that your, your word would reach deeply into our hearts and bring us a reality that, that actually changes the way that we view life with you, this life here, and our lives in particular. We're going to lean on you today, Father. We need you today. Help us with that, Father. Amen. Well, I want to start out with a really big idea. And the big idea is this. Each of us lives with an idea or an expectation of how our lives would go 
if everything were just right. Do you get that? Think about that for a second. Just kind of let that settle in. In fact, let me, let me say it again. Let me, let me, uh, I'll switch it up a little bit. Each of us has some mental and emotional picture of how our lives would go if everything went just right. And I'm not saying that's a literal process. I'm not, I'm not saying that we sit down um, and we come up with a list of non-negotiables for happiness and meaning. So sometimes we do think intentionally about how our lives line up with our expectations. But either way, just about everyone has some picture of how life would go if everything were just right, if everything went the way that we thought it should go. And so, you guys, let me just ask you, based on that idea, that assumption, how is your life living up to that picture right now? How is that mental picture of your desired future looking these days? How is the fulfillment of your just right life developing in the actual real world? Or how satisfied are you with the parts and the pieces and the pathway of the life that you have settled into? You guys, when I was in my, in my mid-20s, um, I knew exactly how life was going to go for me. I mean, exactly. I knew. I, I had 100% certainty. And I decided that I was going to create that life through sheer willpower. Like, I was deciding. Nobody decides for me. And I had a picture, and I began living toward that picture through brute force. Well, guess what's more powerful than sheer willpower and brute force? Reality. Reality is more powerful than sheer willpower and brute force. And I crashed into the reality of the life that I was living at the time, and it really derailed me. I mean, for a long time. You guys, here's what I'm getting at. Here's where this whole thing starts, and you're going to see that this is where Paul starts in this passage that we're going to look at in a second. If life doesn't feel like it's just right, if the plan isn't panning out the way that you thought it would, if you don't have, you know, big satisfaction with how your life is shaping up right now, if it feels to you like there's something wrong with how all of this is going, you're not an outlier. You're not an aberration. It's not like you're some deformed unicorn. You're not the exception, and you're not alone. The truth is, our world is really broken, and it's wildly imperfect, and so things never go just right. Life is never 100% the way our souls want it to be. Dissatisfaction is, is simply a part of every life. But the thing is, that's not the end of the story. That's not how this or, the story ends. This, this grand redemptive story that Jesus started does not end with, and no one lived happily ever after. That's not the end of the story. The story goes way different than that. And so here's the bigger truth. All of this means that your soul is looking for a kind of life that it hasn't found yet. And it's, kind of, it's the kind of life that this world cannot give you. And that's true for every human being who's ever lived, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, who actually broke this world. 
And what you're going to see today is that satisfying, that longing in your soul for, the, for life the way that it was supposed to be is what God wants for every single person. You long for a life that's not fully available in the world that you live. But God says, that's exactly the life that's coming. That's exactly the life that I'm preparing for you right now. So knowing and accepting and receiving this reality, you guys, it's a gift. It is a great mercy if you can know this and and receive it for yourself. You either know this, accept it, and receive it as the ultimate promise of the life that your soul has always wanted, or you have to simply give up. And you have to settle for a life that is infinitely less than what you're made to live. I think super carefully about the words that I speak to you. When when it's my turn to stand behind the mic, I think about these words. And I weigh them out. And I don't think I'm overstating this. There is an epidemic of, of depression today. Depression and anxiety, especially among the young. And I think that that depression is linked to a lie. There's a false promise in culture that says the just right life is available to you right now. If you'll just hustle, if you'll just keep trying, it's going to take a little willpower and it's going to take a little brute force. And I'm telling you, that's not the way it works. This week, we're going to look at the hope of glory. And the hope of glory, it's, it's like old guys speak for this thing that, that God promises to us. But I'm hoping today that when you leave, um, somebody asks you, like, hey, what did John talk about? That you'll go, he talked about hope of glory. In fact, you'll, be, you'll leave just saying that, that that'll become yours today, hope of glory. So my goal today is to lift your head so that you can see more than the life that you're in right now, and so that you can see that your just right life is actually on the way. So you guys, if you have your Bibles, um, would you please uh, go ahead and open them to to Romans 8. Um, I always use my phone, so if you have your phone, that that works too. Um, Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And I am, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. And what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to try and frame up uh, some big ideas for you this morning. Um, the first big idea that I want to frame up this morning is the idea that we suffer now because we're not yet in glory. Do you get that? We suffer now because we're not yet in glory. I'm going to start in verse 18. Paul writes this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Verse 20. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning. Groaning's a big idea, you guys. In this passage, we're going to see groaning a few different times. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Two key ideas in in this passage so far that we've read. 
suffering and glory. Let's do the hard part first. Let's talk about suffering. The first thing that I want you to notice in, in this passage is that Paul assumes our suffering. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't break it down for us. Um, I mean, we're going to get a, a good idea of what he's talking about in a second, but it's through context, not through his actual explanation. And he doesn't have to explain it to the Romans because it's obvious to them what he's talking about, and that's probably why he doesn't explain it. The Romans know firsthand that to follow Jesus means you also follow him into his suffering. But there's a lot more to this. So, question, rhetorical question, what has Paul just been writing about up to this point? Now, about five minutes ago, I told you. What he's been saying is that there's a war within us between the law and sin and the Holy Spirit who is trying to guide us. Now, a couple weeks ago, you may remember that Andy talked about the law specifically. Uh, the metaphor was a husband, and it's this perfect husband. This, like, I mean, this husband doesn't get any better. He says the right things. He does the right things. He looks fantastic. He's amazing. But guess what? He's critical. He's critical of you, and he's always telling you what to do. And so you have this amazing husband who's always condemning you, and the dude won't die. He just lives on and on and on. And so this, this law and sin, it's warring against the Holy Spirit who guides us. And my point and Paul's point is that that's not the way that life was intended to be. None of that was part of God's original plan for us. And so, you guys, that means that we're stuck. We're actually stuck living lives we weren't intended to live. The plan wasn't for you to struggle against a sin nature that's actually a part of you, that actually lives within you. You were not intended to have an internal adversary who's always opposing your desire to follow Jesus. As followers of Jesus, um, there's a life that we actually aspire to, and yet there's a part of us that's always opposing that holy aspiration. We were designed to be one thing, but we ended up being another. So I brought a couple props. Um, this is one of my props. Can anybody tell me what this is? Don't, don't answer yet. I'll give you a hint. Anybody? Fishing rod. Exactly. You're 100% right. You just won yourself a brand. No, you did not. You absolutely did not win that fishing rod. That's like maybe my favorite fishing rod ever. Um, but yes, that's a, that's a, it's a fishing rod and reel to be exact, okay? You are 100% right. Kimber, was that you? Did you get that? Okay, you get credit for that one. Um, do you guys know what this is? Have you ever seen this? Can you see it clearly? Okay, can anybody tell me what this is? A bobber? Good guess. Really good guess. A little, a little bit louder. Say it again. Pollution, yes. In some places it is pollution. Wow, that was really good. This is a fishing rod, you guys. Actually, it's a fishing, I, I call it a bottle rod. What do you think is more common in our world today, that fishing rod or this bottle rod? This bottle rod is actually way more common 
in our world. You guys, this is what we were intended to be. But this is what we are. It's, it's kind of like actually the truth. With that rod and reel right there, um, I can catch a 300-pound striped marlin. You want to know why I know that? Because me and that dude right there, Chris Jones, we caught a 300-pound marlin on a, on a rig just like that. You can't catch a 300-pound marlin on this. You catch a 10-pound snapper, like it'd be hard, but you could do it. Like it, it'd, be a, it'd be a real challenge. So we're intended to be that. And, and the, the thing about it is like, yeah, can you make that bottle rod work? You absolutely can. But it is wildly limited, and it's extremely frustrating. I mean, these guys, they're, they're like super gifted with these things. Like I've got tape on it, but I've got, you know, weight on it, and I've got a hook. And what they do is they bait this thing up, and somehow they, they hold the line, and then they take this, and then they just fling it. They don't fling the bottle. They, they fling the, the line, and the line just like unravels off the bottle, and then they're fishing. And when they hook a fish, they have to hand line that all the line back onto this bottle. Inefficient, wildly frustrating. Now imagine, since we were supposed to be that, but we ended up being that, imagine that struggle never goes away, ever. That's what we're talking about this morning, this, this internal struggle that we have to want to be who we should be, but we end up who we are, that struggle, it never goes away. As long as you're breathing, there's a selfish, lusty, demanding, greedy, voracious appetite in you that opposes who you really want to be, who you were designed to be, and how you were made to live. This is you, and this is me. It's all of us. And it's, it's not just that the world is, you know, around us is broken. There's also something broken in humanity. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's hard to be you in this world. And you can't follow without suffering some of the incongruence that wars within you. But remember, that's not the end of the story. Paul says that all that suffering is nothing compared to the life that God has for you. I want you to hold on to that idea of nothing, okay? Paul says it's nothing. And the best that Paul can do to describe that future life that, that he promises to us is the word glory. And, and that, that word doesn't do a ton for me. It's like, I, okay, cool. Like, I, I just don't, I, uh, when, when I just read that word, it, it doesn't mean a ton to me. But that's what Paul says. Hope of glory makes all the difference. And I hope that when you leave today, that's what you'll be thinking. That's what you'll be saying. Hope of glory. God's ultimate answer to our frustration and suffering in this life is a future glorious life. And here's the thing, you guys. If you don't understand this glorious life, you can't live in the comfort of God's promise. I mean, God's still going to come through. The, the promise is certain. It's going to happen. But if you don't lean into that promise now, you don't get the comfort of it now. And so what is this glory? What, what exactly are we talking about? Um, if, if, I just, if we were just sitting together and I asked you that, uh, how would you answer? 
What is this glory? Glory is when everything becomes just right again. It's when everything is restored to the way that it's supposed to be. In glory, all of creation will be renewed to its perfect, uncorrupted state, including every single follower of Jesus. So I started out this morning saying that each of us lives with like this, this picture or, or an echo or, or like, a, like a dream of how our lives would go if everything was just right. In glory, everything goes back to being just right. What you hope for, what you long for, that finally happens. Tim Keller, he, he writes this. There is a glory coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls upon us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify it along with us. We will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, redeemed reality. And you guys get this. In verse 29, uh, we're going to get there in a second. Here's a preview. In verse 29, we actually find out that in glory, God causes his followers to become like his son. Now, what I did not say is become like, more like his son. It doesn't say that. It doesn't, say, it doesn't have that word more in there. It says like his son. Everything that seems wrong with us today is going to go away. And we will become as perfectly holy and beautiful as Jesus. That's what the Bible promises. That's not my promise. That's God's word, not my word. And so for us then, that, that means that this promise, it becomes very personal. It's, it's, it applies to your life specifically. So like I said, this, this promise, it becomes deeply personal for all of us. Um, if, if, you, if you've been around me enough, um, or if you've seen me speak at the mic ev at all, ever, um, then you guys may have noticed that I'm a really emotional guy. <laughs> In fact, I, I think I'm the most emotional man I've ever known, except for maybe Dan Danny Kimlot, if you know Danny Kimlot. But I think I win, um, if there's a competition. Um, so it, for me personally, and, and I've, th I've thought about this a lot, uh, just for myself and, and my own relationship with Jesus, and it's like the decibel level of my heart is just turned way up. And uh, I, I often end up feeling bigger emotions than the people around me. It's just it's the way it works. And, and really, it applies to all my emotions. Like, again, if, if you were around me a lot, you, you would know this is true. Just ask Co or my son Tim sometime. Um, it applies to all my emotions. So it's like sadness, aggression, joy, the whole thing. It's like the decibel level is, is just turned up. It's like the volume control on my heart, it feels broken, if I'm being totally honest. It feels like somebody turned the volume way up, and then they, they broke the knob, and there's, there's no way to adjust it now. And so oftentimes, my emotions, they either feel too loud or they're actually too loud. But I imagine a day... When the volume control in my heart works just the way it's supposed to, <laughs> gosh, that'd be so cool. And um, I, I get pushback on this sometimes um, when people will say, no, your heart's just right. 
or your, your feelings are just right. And I guess we can argue about the suitability of my heart <laughs> or the suitability of my, the way I feel. Um, this is just one change I think I long for, though. That's all I'm trying to say. And I could give you dozens of other examples. But someday, every deficient part of me is going to be just right. And this is true of every single follower of Jesus. So that means if you follow Jesus, it's going to be true for you as well. And that's the hope of this promise. But again, that's not what we have right now. We don't get that in this moment. And because of that, The Holy Spirit helps us in our waiting and our weakness. That's the second big idea I want to frame for you guys. The Holy Spirit helps us in our waiting and our weakness. So verse 23, let's jump back into it. Verse 23, Paul writes, and we believers also groan. I told you groaning is one of the themes in this passage. Creation groans, but we also feel the pain of our dissatisfaction and our frustration. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. That word foretaste, really important word. You guys, something tasty is coming. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released. Released from what? From sin and suffering. We too wait, there's that big idea, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Verse 24, we were given this hope when we were saved. Now just drop to verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. There's that second big idea, waiting and weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. In other words, we don't know how to talk to God about this dis-ease that we feel, our discomfort, our, our disillusionment. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings. There we go. So creation groans, we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. So even though Paul doesn't explain our suffering, remember I said that? Right here in this context, he defines our suffering as waiting and weakness. It, it's suffering to wait in the weakness of, of, of our deficient, sinful, and imperfect humanity. When I was 27 years old, I got double pneumonia, not stoked, and it's a long story, but I'll tell you, it's connected to sheer willpower and brute force. Um, I, got, I got double pneumonia. Uh, do you know what pneumonia is? I didn't know. I didn't know before I got it. Um, apparently, each of us has something like 500 million air sacs in our lungs, alveoli. And, and with pneumonia, the air sacs in your lungs, uh, they become infected, they get inflamed, and then they literally begin to fill with fluid. And so like in pneumonia, your, your lungs begin to take on, on fluid. It makes it really hard to oxygenate your blood. 
And that's what happened to me. And, and frankly, I, that's what I, since I went through that, that's what I imagined COVID to be like, too. That's how I've heard it described. But the bottom line is, it was debilitating. And I mean, for months, it was debilitating. I was literally out of work for three months. And the life that I knew before pneumonia, as a young 27-year-old man, um, it was gone while I had pneumonia. And I was stuck in a life that wasn't my own. And you know what I did? I waited. I waited in my weakness. It was the only thing I could do. Um, I literally couldn't do anything else. So I waited in my weakness. I was a wildly diminished version of myself um, for a long, long time. And I just had to wait it out without making it worse. And that is the problem with this life. Those two things are what make our lives so hard, is the waiting. We, we hate waiting, is the waiting, but not just waiting, it's waiting in our weakness. And Paul says, God knows. He knows all of our hearts, and God is coming through on the life that you long for most. Big idea number three that I want to frame up for you. God is coming through on the life that you long for most. Now, I'm going to read to you a verse and other than John 3.16, this may be the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. It's Romans 8.28. And chances are, I could, a bunch of you already know this verse, and, and you can recite this verse. Um, we're going to look at it maybe in a way that you never have. Romans 8.28. It says, Paul writes, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Everybody know that pretty much? You guys have all heard that verse? Okay, let's read it again. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Verse 29, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. That was the verse I, I mentioned earlier so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them glory, his glory. So Paul says, I, in fact, okay, so going back to Romans eight twenty eight, 28, um, we're going to do a little quiz, okay? You don't have to turn in your work. Um, there's no grade. Um, but I'm going to give you a few options, a few summary statements for Romans 8.28, and you tell me which is the right one, okay? Now, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read the verse again, but here's statement number one. God causes everything to work out just fine in the end. That's statement number one, okay? You got it? Statement number two. These are, you, you get to pick these options. God will make everything work out the way you want it to. That's, that's another option that you can pick. And then the third one is, God makes a happy ending for everyone. So based upon those three, which best describes Romans 8.28? Trick question! Yeah, none of them do. Sorry. Sorry if I tricked you. Kimber, I scare you? Okay. I'm oh, sorry. We're just like having this thing this morning. So great. Paul tells us that God is working for the good 
not the comfort necessarily, but the good of those who love him. And then he explains that goodness, you guys. He doesn't leave it up to us. He goes on in the, in the next two verses, and he explains it. And guess what? That goodness isn't connected to this life. And so if you think that this verse applies to your life right now, you'd be wrong. I'm sorry. This is where the goodness starts, no doubt about it. But this life isn't good enough to contain the ultimate goodness that God has in mind for us. So Paul lays out the links in, in, in the chain for a follower of Jesus that leads from the life that you're in right now to the life you will have when everything is just right to your life in glory. And you guys, here's how the chain goes. Here's how he links this together. God knows who belongs to him. That's where it starts. For those people, those people who belong to him, he predetermines their destination. He predestines them to become like Jesus. And then he calls those people to himself, and then he justifies those people, and finally he gives them his glory. That's how he works for the good of those who follow him. And only that is good enough to be called the goodness of God. I think that's the biggest point there, is that there is no goodness in this world that can measure up to that goodness. You can, be, you can go from being far from God. You can, you can go from not knowing Jesus at all to receiving his full glory. The just right life that he gives to those who love him, it trumps any kind of human glory that you can get in this life. So, you guys, there's just a, just a couple things that, that I want to say about all this, and, and then we're going to be done. We're, we're going to wrap up. First thing that I want to say is that it's really hard to see your future glory when there's so much of this life ahead of you. I mean, we are so preoccupied by the lives that we live in right now and by the false promises of this world and, and even by our aspirations, I mean, just for the, for the sake of this message, um, let's just imagine that we're all going to live 90 years, okay? We're all going to live 90 years old. That means I am closer to glory than just about all y'all here, all right? Just about all y'all. Um, I have less life to live between now and then. And, and I've got a working theory, and it's just based on my life. You know, you can, you can judge this for yourself. But the greater the amount of living that you have ahead of you, the harder it is to see and grasp the glory that God promises you. That's what I've experienced in my own life. It's like your life is stacked up ahead of you, and all that life, it makes it hard to see your just right life that's coming. Dallas Willard is, um, he's, he's no longer living, but he's one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite thinkers. I, I love what he writes. I love what he has said. When Dallas Willard was two years old, his mother, Mamie, died from complications of surgery. And her, her last words to Dallas's father were, keep eternity before the eyes of the children. Let's give that a second. She's dying, and she pleads with her husband. Please keep eternity before the eyes of the children. 
Because that quote, oh, my gosh, every single time I read it, it just stops me. And I think it's because keeping eternity before anyone is like the great human challenge of our time. Today and tomorrow, it's like today, this very day, and tomorrow, it's like that is gin clear. I can see that with absolute clarity. But looking off into eternity is like looking into motor oil. It's hard. The lives that we live, it's like they, they block our field of view. They get in the way of the glory that Jesus is preparing for us right now. The harder it is to focus on the hope of glory, the harder it is to metabolize our frustration and our dissatisfaction with this life and this world. And what Paul's trying to do in this passage is he's trying to clear your field of view. He's trying to slide all this stuff aside to help us see that reality, um, the reality that it's extremely hard to focus on that. I have an observation. The longer I know and love and follow Jesus, the less important all the things around me seem to be. It's like my hope of glory goes up. And I hope when you leave, that's what you're going to be saying, hope of glory. My hope of glory goes up, and my dissatisfaction in life generally, it goes down. Because fixing your attention on future glory, um, it helps you see this life for what it is. I've been thinking about this for a really long time, and I've been writing about this, and there's something I want to read to you, and, and I'll, you know, full disclosure, it's a little long, so if you can, just kind of hang with me on this, but I think it, I think it kind of gets at what, what Paul's getting at. There's an emerging message I'm hearing more often from people, especially from my younger friends, and I think it speaks to an unmet longing in our hearts. The problem is, I don't think it's a longing that can be satisfied in this life. The longing goes something like this. I feel like I should have my life figured out by now. I feel like I wasted so much time in my 20s or my 30s or pick your decades. I feel like I should be further along. I feel like I should have accomplished more and experienced more than I have so far. Especially the message says, essentially the message says, I'm not keeping up. So I'm not getting all that life has to offer. But why is this even a thing? Why does it have to be such a controlling issue in our lives? Why do we allow this unreasonable idea to push us around? I think this is only a thing if you believe it's all about this life. If you're living only for the life that you're in right now, yes. You should worry about wasting or failing to maximize every single moment of your life. If this is all you get, by all means, you better get busy and squeeze every morsel of living out of every second. Print yellow on your hat and FOMO on your shirt and get on with your one and only life. If every day is about now, you better catch up with everybody else and grab everything you can get your hands on. If this is all there is, Hit the gas pedal and cram all you can carry into every open space in your life. You better jump into the water off of every cliff, climb every pitch, visit every glacier, fish every ocean, sip every cocktail, sample every dish, see every site, walk every continent, make every dollar, earn every promotion, on and on and on. Until you spend every last bit of your essence and then it's over. Or is it? On the other hand, 
if you believe that every minute in this life is about every minute in a better life to come, life takes on a different quality. In some ways, it becomes more urgent, but in many ways, the pressure releases. On the other hand, if you believe that every minute in this life is about every minute in a better life to come, life takes on a different quality. In some ways, it becomes more urgent, but in many ways, the pressure releases. What's the YOLO for the next life? The one that Jesus offers. I guess there isn't one. YOLO stops being you only live once and becomes you only live forever. If there's another life with a brand new, fully restored world, you're wasting every minute today not living for every minute in that life, in that world. The pressure is off in this life and this world if that life and that world are real. There's no more keeping up and there's no more keeping the game clock running. There's only following Jesus at the pace of the Holy Spirit through this life on into the next. After all, if he's the one who started this life, he's also the one who's going to make it perfect again for his followers. Friends, I can't see into your hearts. Not a single one of you. And so I can't know if you've received his righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus offers you. His righteousness is his solution to our depravity. His righteousness is his solution to our sin problem. His righteousness is his way of bringing us back into his family. His righteousness is your open door to the just right life. And guess what? There's no other solution. You either receive this free gift from Jesus or you don't. But this wildly extravagant gift, it also comes with a... You think I'm going to say cost? It's like, yeah, there was a cost to pay. But this extravagant gift also comes with a promise. It's, it just comes with a promise. And that promise is your hope of glory. I hope when you leave, that's what you're going to be saying, hope of glory. Receiving his righteousness by putting your faith in what he did for you on the cross is how you access this glorious future life with him. That's the, that's the life that your soul longs for. You just can't get it here. This world is simply not enough to give you the magnificent life that your soul was made for. You're going to have to wait for that. But our hope of glory, it makes our waiting bearable. If you remember, in verse 23, I, I, I read this. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. The Holy Spirit uses this hope of glory that I've been talking about and he uses it kind of like as a, as, a, as a divine, like, appetizer or a, or a divine uh, hors d'oeuvre and a mousse-bouche, if you will, of this just-right life that Jesus is preparing right now. And that hope can change everything about how we live the rest of our lives in this world. So, friends, look up. Lift your heads. Get your eyes up. See past the struggle and the details of your life in this broken world. Clear your field of view. Get eye contact with the just right life that God is restoring for all people who, for all those who love him. 
But yeah, get your eyes up. Like, see past the struggle and the details of your life. Verse 18, I'm, I'm going to finish with this. Verse 18 says, yet what we suffer now is nothing. I asked you to, to remember that word, nothing. What we suffer now, the discomfort that you have with your life, your actual life, the discomfort that you feel each day, it's nothing. It's as if it doesn't exist. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Hope of glory, you guys. Hope of glory. I hope you say that when you leave today. Oh, Jesus, your word can do its work in our hearts. So, Jesus, I just submit this message to you. And I present us to you, and I ask for your help in uh, changing our hearts and renewing who we are. We love you, Jesus, and we intend to live for you, and we intend to pursue you. Help us with that. Amen.